He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. the triple threat podcast bringing to you another episode here of this triple threat podcast every single week on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting platform if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner the one and only john posman on this show on the triple threat podcast for 48 episodes we have with us the one and only co-host of ours, Franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to yet another Ask Franchise Anything episode of the Triple Threat Podcast. I've been doing mental calisthenics all week long in preparation for this to make sure the brain is nice and nimble and ready to go and cut the backflip. So let's get it rolling. Yeah, let's get it rolling. We got... A lot of fun questions here that have been accumulating for a while because, you know, the way we like to do it is we like to close out the show with a question, but the shows in the last, like, six weeks have been so crazy. I think we've only brought out, like, one or two questions, so we're uh, we're playing a little bit of catch-up. We're probably not going to get to all of them, but we're, we're going to play a little bit of catch-up here, uh, but before we get into all of it, we want to kind of recap the weekend. Obviously, we've talked about it for the last few uh, months. John and I had a huge weekend in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, taking care of business with uh, TMPT Con 2. And you yourself were out there in Texas working with Bussin' for Autism. So before we get into some of the things about our show, Shane, how was uh, how was your rootin' tootin' weekend out in Texas? Well, you know, aside from the fact that you know, that horrific school shooting, you know, what took place is, you know, pretty much right down the road. In Texas, everything's right down the road, but it wasn't far and, you know, so the, the flags were all at half mass, you know, ever, there was sort of a pall over, you know, uh, all the people just around town at the hotel, uh, just a horrific thing they went through. But what really was inspiring for me was to see how those people, the, the Texans, uh, you know, were able to compartmentalize. They, they know it was a tragedy, a horrific tragedy, but, you know, they were able to, you know, the fans that were at the building that night had a fantastic time. Uh, and, you know, working for Bustin' for Autism and helping them uh, raise some money, uh, meeting some of those kids was uh, really cool. And there's, a, there's one kid I want to talk, uh, send a shout-out because his name is Dominic. 
my man was cool, cool as shit. He, uh, he, he came up and, you know, fist bumping and, you know, like when you'd say certain things to him, like he'd, he'd you know, he'd try to hold it. He'd bust a big ass smile. And his mother took him up into the ring to get a picture with MVP. And he came back to the table. And I said, all right, Dominic, you know, what's the deal, man? I see you up there getting a picture with, with MVP and, you know, same thing. He tried to hold it in and finally cracked a big smile. So Dominic and his mother are out there listening. Shout out to my new buddy, man. He's a really cool kid. That's awesome. Yeah, those are great stories to hear. And that was a stacked card in itself and yourself and Rikishi and, and the ageless one, Billy Gunn. I mean, uh, what a collection of stars to uh, to see in one venue. But I saw that the franchise was uh, was Don in the Zebra uh, while he was out there in Texas. So how was, uh, how was your assignment there officiating, uh, the, the match you did right down the middle, I'm sure. Well, it was right down the middle. I tell you what, these kids really gave me hope that, you know, about the business because, you know, everybody, you, we've talked about that nausea on here, my feelings about sports entertainment and where the industry has gone, but these guys tore the damn house down and, and blew my ass up getting up and down with all the pulse finishes and everything. But, they really did put on a, a, a fantastic old school wrestling match that it, it was exciting to the crowd. And I keep on hearing this this belief in certain circles that, well, the fans say they don't like to see long matches and they don't want to see all that. They just want to see the backflips and all that kind of stuff. These people were glued to the match and these kids really tore the house down. I was uh, proud to be part of it with them. It was a great, great match. And, you know, uh, Vampiro being there, MVP. Uh, like you said, the hate was one Billy Gunn, Rikishi. It, it really was a stack card. It was, you know, one, for us, it was a, a really cool night because, you know, it was a sort of relaxed night. You didn't really worry about, you know, a match or, you know, planning that out in your head. But just getting the opportunity to sit there and meet all these kids, uh, meet all the people that were there. And, and, and you know, in that uh, Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia was the name of the town uh, right near Texas A&M had a hell of a good time it's beautiful country it reminded me from way back whenever i was breaking into the business and got my break in uwf how we ran all over that state of texas just a beautiful state beautiful people it was uh, a great event just had a really really good time being there we'll accept it that you were not with us in richmond because you were out there working for such a good cause so we'll take it on the chin this one we're okay with that we 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 cried we commiserated, but uh, we we felt like we lost you to a good cause, and that that at the end of the day doesn't bother us one single solitary bit. But you were sorely missed in Richmond uh, over the weekend, Jane, and it was uh, quite the battle, starting with the insane weather that just rocketed through this region, and really from the East Coast down, I think through even Florida, because my uncle was with my cousin down at the Special Olympics opening ceremony in Florida, and they had pouring rain too. So it's interesting how much the weather affected it. But John and I drove from northern Virginia down to Richmond. What would be a 90-minute drive took three-plus hours because of rain. Really? Oh, rain and traffic and accidents and this and that. And it's like we – I mean, honestly, it took us an hour and 15 to go about, I would say, 20 miles it was it was bad, wow. but you know, a um, well, lot of a lot of show knows, prep. We, the, the three of us have not spoken other than a few texts back and forth, uh, so I haven't heard any of the inside stories or anything yet. But I I did see today on Twitter. I was on there for about an hour and a half or so before I had to take a run, and it seemed like there was an awful lot of positive feedback about the convention. So I knew we'd be talking tonight, and 
been dying to hear the hear the uh, the behind the scenes uh, uh, scuttlebutt. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, you know, like I said before uh, in the buildup. You know, we've been doing these shows for years. We've been going to the shows even longer. I mean, I've been working around the memorabilia industry since 2001. And um, just to see, you know, things that have gone wrong, things that were were bad, things that might not look good to a customer. You know, you kind of see like what you would do in your own. It's the same thing with you want to build a wrestling show the right way. You know things that are going to go well. Sure. You know things that are going to be wrong. You got to maintain you know, the customer service, you, but you also have to keep everybody happy and you got to make sure that, you know, you get your orders done and you get all that. So there's so much involved with the process that, you know, to say I'm relieved, I know John is probably really relieved that this is past us. Um, I'm a little, re- I'm definitely really, but there's some really cool things that, that came out of it. And, and to start with, you know, uh, Friday, we, we had a little bit of a, a vendor issue that we had to get over. So, you know, we had something that didn't work out the way it was supposed to. So John and I were uh, traveling back and forth to the airport, which was fine. We had a good time picking up uh, Scorpio. We were hanging out with him for a little bit. Uh, that was cool. We saw your... Scorpio's great, isn't he? Oh, what a nice guy. What what a nice guy. We were, hang- yeah. we were hanging out with Mikey. How about this table at the bar? John, myself, Eric Bischoff, and Mikey. So how about that for a... Uh... <laughs> How about that for a foursome? Hell yeah! Who was buying? Uh, I don't want to go into that part of the. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll save that one, but I want to welcome John in here now because I'm going to let him kind of take forward with uh, the big news of the weekend, which is obviously uh, the late edition of David Arquette, who was only added to the show ten days before we were ready to uh, to get down there into Richmond, and he's working on a project. That it's hit the uh, the dirt sheets, it's hit the uh, the news wires. He's working on a on a on a film project revolving around professional wrestling, and we happen to be one of the first stops on that project. So, um, John, as I welcome you in here now, obviously, you know, it was a huge part, and basically, I'd say like ninety percent of the talk of the day was not just that they were filming uh, in the convention, not just that David Arquette was in attendance, but it was just David Arquette's. Uh, overall fan-friendly presence and the fact this guy contributed to our show so much more than just being a guest. I mean, he was uh, he was almost like a convention goer as well as one of the guests. It was a surreal experience dealing with David Arquette, but kind of give us and give Shane specifically too, you know, a little bit of the uh, the recap of all the Arquette happenings. Yes, yeah, so he had uh, a lot of stuff going on that weekend. So uh, you know, dealing with him and his team was super easy whenever you have to deal with anybody from hollywood there was always a stereotype or maybe a misconception about how they're going to act and how they're going to be but man sure uh, i can't think i literally can't think of a nicer guy and an easier guy to work with whether it was pulling off logistics whether we're setting uh, him up with some stuff for friday night saturday and then sunday i mean he just goes with the flow he's so easy going he's so nice he's so friendly he went around even at the convention on saturday he went around to every single table and he made sure he bought something from every table. So he came up to our table because wow. you know, we had a Eric Bischoff there. So we're selling Bischoff books and he goes, Oh, how much for the book? I'm like, yeah, right. Get out of here. He goes, no, seriously. He goes, I'm here to help this convention. I want to help everyone that's here. He goes, I don't care if it's 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever it is. He goes, I want to you know, help contribute. So he went around, bought a Bischoff book. He went around, um, somebody was selling a mask. He bought a mask. Somebody was selling a figure. He bought a figure. He, he was so cool. He even got an autograph of every wrestler that was there. 
took pictures with anybody and everybody that wanted pictures, gave autographs, even made his own special eight by 10 for that, that show only. So, so cool right. and so fun. And I got to spend, <clears throat> excuse me, I got to spend a lot of time with him uh, Saturday and Sunday, which was uh, Sunday the day after the convention. And so cool what he's working on and what he's doing. I won't go into too much detail with it because they haven't actually released all the information yet, but he's filming a pretty cool uh, little little ditty that he's going to be putting out soon. And love to be a, a small part of, uh, of a major production that he's about to put on. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all what you're saying about David because when he was down there in, in WCW, I mean, you know, we can get into the splicing atoms with, you know, the the positioning and and, and this and that uh, was a good booking, bad booking, but uh, I can tell you that he and Courtney Cox uh, were still together at the time. Uh, they came down together. Uh, we sat and had drinks. Uh, I forget who all was there. It was you know five or six of us sitting around. They were very gracious, uh, really cool to hang out with, uh, gave off no airs whatsoever. They, they were just both really good people, you know, it was like, like one of the boys. And uh, so it didn't surprise me when you, when you guys said you added him. I knew you guys would have a good experience with David because he's a, he's a professional in every sense of the word that from the experience that I have with him uh, and, and that we had in WCW, just a, a hell of a guy. Oh, so nice. I mean, just the whole team that he had with them, they were very accommodating uh, and they wanted to be involved and they, and they wanted to interact with the fans. And, you know, there was a, a formal meet and greet with David that we had kind of etched out in the in a time frame. And I'd say about 20 minutes into the show starting, I see them coming down and he just starts walking around the floor. And like John said, he's going to every table Um you know, he was talking to every single fan that wanted to take a picture with him and ask him questions. And then you see him, like, not just asking a fan a question. It's, it's almost like what you see with you, Shane. You ask you one question, it leads to conversation. He would literally go out yeah. of his way to, to take a fan into the hallway and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. It wasn't just, let's talk here right in the middle of the floor and, you know, oh, when somebody calls me, I'm going to walk this way. No, he would take them out in the hallway right. and have one-on-one -on -one dialogue with it. So if you happen to be in attendance that day, you, you got to be a part of something special. And it wasn't just the fact that it was Arquette. I mean, it was such an eclectic group and also the NWO involved and, and you know, and, and it's Scott Hall, Kevin Nash and, sure. and Eric Bischoff. And, you know, and uh, everybody leading up to this, we were getting messages, you know, is Scott Hall going to be there? Is Scott Hall going to no show? Is Scott Hall going to be there? Because unfortunately, you know, Scott, yeah. Scott Hall's had to miss some shots. You know, it's very well documented documented why he has. I can't begin to sing the praises of Scott Hall enough at this appearance, Shane, just because of how interactive he was with the fans. He blew me away yeah. with, his, with his attitude, how happy he was. He was joking. I had a little boy come up to me who he asked for the poster. I gave him the poster. We chit-chatted. He wanted to. Ask, he was asking about uh, Wild Samoan Sika, if I knew anything about him. This kid must have been 10 years old. So I took him over I, I took him over to meet Mikey. I took him over to meet Henry Godwin, and he said that the only reason he was there was to hear Scott Hall say, hey, yo. So I brought him up to Hall. Hall said, hey, yo. The kid popped. You know, Hall was laughing. And I was like, you know what? This is amazing that we can see it because everybody in that room was happy. And if we made that little boy's day, then obviously, you know, that was a huge part of that show. Well, absolutely. That, that really, 
when you boil it down to the brass tacks, that really is what it's supposed to be about is not just the kids, but the fans in attendance uh, leaving and feeling like their money was well spent. They were well treated. Uh, they met everybody they wanted to meet, had a great time. That's what a great convention is supposed to be. And, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, you, you go to some of these conventions and you'll, you know, you'll see somebody that doesn't want to talk to the fans or somebody's, you know, in and out of the venue and, and, you know, on their phone or whatever. And that's the kind of thing. Think about it from a personal point of view. If you were walking in to something you were paying money for and you walk up and talk to somebody and they're on their phone and, you know, giving the half-assed treatment, that's not a good experience. And, and, and in the long run, that starts to make you pretty angry. So when you have an experience like these fans had, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in good begets good. So you, if your fans at that uh, at your second convention had that good of a time, uh, all the hard work that you guys put into, and I know how hard you guys have been working on that for months, uh, was worth it because the fans, that, that 10-year-old fan will talk about that for the next 20 years of his life and he'll tell his friends next year and all the other fans had a great time talking to David Arquette and, and Bischoff and Kevin and Scott and all the guys that were there too cold Scorpio. Those fans will tell 20 fans and some number of them will come next year. And it just slowly builds. Like I told you guys before, I think you guys are onto something great. And it's a the hell of an area to do it in and one that's not really uh, overrun with conventions. So you, you guys have a great opportunity to build something there. You got two Jersey guys uh, in the middle of the uh, the Mid Atlantic region, you know, uh, uh, shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, uh, trying to do something right <laughs> for the fan base. But before we move on from it and get into some ask a franchise anything, John, any final takeaways before we put this TMPT Con two to bed? Yeah, just about Arquette and about Bischoff. It's funny you talk to a couple of old school fans because Richmond has some really deep rooted old school fans. And they say, oh, yeah. you know, Bischoff is an asshole and our catch should have never won, you know, the title and blah, blah. And by the end of the show, uh, especially after Bischoff's Q&A, some of those fans came up to me and said, you know what? Arquette is one of the nicest, uh, like, sweetest, <laughs> uh, you know, down to earth people I ever met. And they're like, Bischoff is funny. He's cool. Uh, he's not what I thought he was. I thought he was a dick because of his television character. So it's funny. Uh, Bischoff and Arquette came out like looking like roses. Everyone loved him at the end of the day. Yeah, it's, isn't that funny how it happens? You know, so often the fans, and that really is a testament, I guess. Like with Eric, it's a testament to how well he plays that character on, you know, on on what, excuse me, whatever show he's on, because when the fans start to believe that character is the person, that means it's being done well. And then they meet them, and you know it's uh, it's a whole different story. So it's uh, it's it's one of those things I've always enjoyed, like and, and just you know watching fans interacting with certain people, uh, and walking in thinking they have that person in their head, and they know them down cold or her down cold, and then they walk away going, "Damn, I was wrong. That person's not so bad after all." You know, it's uh, uh, again what the business is always supposed to be: we're portraying characters. You know, and we had talked about Tony Atlas being there uh, last week, and you were, you know, talking about, hey, mention whatever to Tony Atlas. Now, I didn't get a chance to mention it to him, but just chit. Oh. You know, I did it because we were so tied up. But you know, he he was kind of talking to me as I was setting things up, and you know what? He kind of he made a kind of fascinating point, and I mean, this can kind of tie into as we get into ask franchise anything because I'm going to ask this as a first question. This is from uh, Chad in Northern Virginia. He was talking about. 
licensing and the states that still have and require licensing. Now, Shane, have you run into any kind of licensing like at the last minute where you didn't know that you had to have a license? Because he was talking about how as as being a guy, and he's going to be turning, I can't even believe this, 70 years old and still performing in the ring. And he says what he likes to do is keep his licenses in the states that require it up to date. But have you ever had at the last minute sprung on you some kind of licensing issue that like, oh my God, I can't wrestle tonight because these idiots didn't tell me I needed a license? Sure, a million times. Uh, the, the, the One of the early ones that I remember, I have a uh, an irregular heartbeat out of my entire life. It's called uh, as- idiopathic asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. Idiopathic meaning no known cause, asymptomatic meaning no symptoms. Some people that have atrial fibrillation get syncope, lightheaded, dizziness, passing out. I've never had any of those types of symptoms. And when that was first diagnosed, I you know I'd had it my entire life. But it was first diagnosed getting licensed for the WWF in 1990, and never had any problems working in New York before that. Never had problems working in New York after that, until 1996 when I quit WWF or WWE. It was still WWF at the time. And went back to ECW the next three times in New York. I got this, well, you know, we, we can't let you wrestle. They have a regular heartbeat. The same regular heartbeat I had the other thousand times I'd wrestled in New York. And the last time it happened, I, I had carried a letter with me that my cardiologist had given me saying, you know, this is what he has. And his name's Dr. Leonard Gans. He's a Harvard educated, world renowned, uh, 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 electrophysiologist, heart, you know, cardiac electric physiologist. So he, this, this guy's one of the best in the world and had run me through the ring with all the tests and, you know, stress tests, et cetera. And he finally wrote me a letter and said, if you ever had any trouble, just give this to them. And, uh, the last time, the third time after I quit and going back up for ECW, they, they, they tried again. And I finally had a shot back to Bob Limerick, who wasn't there and to the agents who I knew from ECW, all great guys, George and, some other guys. And I said, look, I need to get all your badge numbers. And he said, why do you need our badge numbers? I said, well, I need Bob Limerick's too. And they said, why do you need our badge numbers? And I said, because when I filed a lawsuit for you trying to stop me from making a living, I want to make sure I get the right badges. All of a sudden, poof, never had a problem ever again. Uh, more recently, uh, in Louisiana, you know, I knew that they had a license. The local promoter told me, and I had gone online and got all my license, got down there to wrestle at the show. And, now I'm in Louisiana, not Pittsburgh. I'm down there, and they tell me at the show the first night that you have to have blood work with an HIV test, a hepatitis test. Nobody's ever told me that. Uh, but I will say this. The, the commissioners that were there, they were really cool. They allowed me to perform as long as it wasn't in a match scenario. So it wasn't like the promoter got really screwed. I was still able to perform and appear on the show. But, you know, those types of things, in my experience with state commissions, be it Pennsylvania that's been gone for years, uh, New York, uh, uh, Virginia was always bad, uh, 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 Maryland was bad, Delaware was horrible, uh, Michigan used to have a bad one, California was always tough there. Now, there's less and less of them today, but I've never once in my entire career, any time that I'd gotten screwed by a promoter not paid, uh, hurt at a building, uh, none of the things that those commissions were supposed to do did I ever get any satisfaction or relief from it. Was, it was always a an excuse and a, you know, he went that way, point in both directions uh, type of thing. Uh, 
I never saw the value in commissions other than they were tax collecting entities for the states. And that was really all they gave a shit about. I, I always love hearing them, you know, announce at the, the top of the old school shows, but you know, you, you find out more about them and you're like, you kind of scratch your head and you go, well, are they really, uh, are they really necessary? You know, it seems like it's so old school and way passe to, to have the commissions. Um, and the states that do, I mean, I, I, is it Kentucky that has like the, re- or is it Indiana? Yeah, Kentucky. Kentucky. That's the one with the real tough one, right? Yeah, yeah. If you, once you uh, once you go over fifty, you have to have a year, uh, you know, complete physical to turn in, and you know all these different, uh, uh, you know, hurdles that they throw in front of you. Uh, but again, like the same thing with Kentucky. Uh, I can't remember the woman's name at the top of my head, but the, the lady that's in charge of the uh, Kentucky Boxing and Wrestling uh, Commission, uh, she's very, very professional, very cordial, very helpful. Uh, if you send her an email or leave a voicemail for her, she gets back to you within some very brief period of time. So, you know, there is some professionalism, but the one that I, or like in Kentucky, for instance, uh, if you buy your license on, let's say JP and Chad go out and buy their license on January 1st, well, your license is good for 365 days. If I buy mine on December 24th, Christmas Eve, Mine's good for six, seven days until the end of the year. Uh, so in reality, you know, the person, I'm not going to buy a, a license for a state if I'm not wrestling there. So you go and you buy the license as needed, and you, you're, I'm paying, in essence, around 350, 360 times what you're paying for your license. Uh, and I just, you know, find that to be a bit onerous that, you know, especially today with technology, they can't keep track and say, well, Shane Douglas bought his December 24th, so he's good till December 24th next year. So crazy. Uh, I think what's funny about the commissions is uh, the doctor that used to work there in uh, Pennsylvania during the uh, WWF days. I just always kind of get a laugh at that, that uh, one Mr. Zaharian. Dr. George <laughs> Zaharian. <laughs> the, uh, the commission doctor. If yeah, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, wasn't he the one that went to prison for a long time over the steroids and things? Yes, yes, he was, uh, and on camera as well as the uh, the the commission yeah. doctor of the state of Pennsylvania, and uh, doing mm-hmm. doing some things there behind uh, closed doors that uh, did not uh, reflect well on the later uh, <laughs> the, the later days of uh, their Mister Zahorian. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, Ah, that's another story. I'm not going to get into that because that's not on any of these lists here. And I asked my one question. So I'm going to try to uh, let's dig into this list here if we got. Now, John, I don't have it in front of me here. All right, now I do. Okay, I'm going to ask one and then I'm going to hand it over to John. And he's going to, uh, he'll, he'll take it from here. John, I don't know what you're going to ask. I'm just kind of randomly looking at the, uh, the sheet here. So I hope I don't step on anything. But let's see. I got one. Shane, are you prepared? Are you ready? Okay, shoot away. All right. A, a favorite of ours here. He's asked many questions in the past. He's a nice man. We met him at WrestleCade. Lenny Backen comes back to the show to ask this question. Did Shane ever consider working for Vern Gagne and the AWA early in his career? Uh, I, I, I didn't, but it wasn't because I made a conscious decision to not wrestle for the AWA or, or to wrestle for them. 
uh, you know, as a kid in the business at that time, uh, you know, literally greener than goose shit. Uh, I had just luckily happened to be working on shows that Dominic Tanucci was putting on in, in coordination with Bill Watts' UWF up here in the Pennsylvania tri-state region, uh, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. And Eddie Gilbert happened, who was Bill's assistant at that time, but for all intents and purposes was really the booker because Bill was focusing on trying to go national to compete with, with Vince. And so Eddie was by proxy sort of the booker. So I, I got my foot in the door that way and sort of, you know, went from that direction from there to the NWA and, you know, bounced around from, from the Southern direction, if you will. I uh, never did, but was a fan of the AWA. You know, I mean, it was, I, I was a fan of the WWF. I was a fan of the NWA. I was a fan of the AWA, of the UWF. I was a fan of all of it back in the day. And had I not been able to get my foot in the door where I did, I sure as hell would have been calling and sending videos or whatever to the AWA. But no, I'd never, I'd never contemplated working there, not consciously. Just, you know, I'd luckily got my foot in the door uh, down south there. Now, I have an interesting one, and I know uh, you, you're you not going to be ready for this one because it was a little bit of, of a surprise, and we didn't mention that we talked to this person. So, Shane, this is a good one for you. This is Mickey from Long Island, New York, and this was via phone call we got this question. Okay. Shane, Shane, the most underrated performer, this is his words, underrated, underappreciated performer, why haven't you asked me to do your show. Oh, I, I think I know who you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, we, we, we're just getting in the process of, of uh, starting to have guests on. As you know, we've had three or four maybe. Uh, uh, PJ came up, you know, PJ was our first guest, correct? Yes. And he came up just because of the, you know, there was the buzz going over about the documentary they were working on and, and I had just run into him. Uh, previous to that, and I know you guys keep pushing for a certain, uh, you know, beautiful queen of extreme that you guys want to try to get on. But I, I know the reason you guys want her on is because you guys march for for, for beautiful women, <laughs> and uh, you know, guilty. You know, there's there's some things that are there. There are some things left, uh, best left untouched because you know. Certain people might have certain discriminating stories uh, about certain other people that probably wouldn't bode well for certain people on this show. So I just don't see the need for it. But as for Mickey from from Long Island, the uh, the open invitation is there. And uh, if Mickey would like to come on, uh, all he has to do is apparently, I guess, call one of you guys. He didn't <laughs> didn't call me. <laughs> no. But, would love to would love to have him have him on the show. Uh, you know, we there's so much history between. Of course, we're talking about Mick Foley, and there's so much history between the two of us. You know, having broken in together, we've known each other literally since we, we even knew how to lace our boots up, or we even had boots. And uh, Mick has some incredible footage. Uh, of us working out at Dominic school. It wasn't of us. It was just him filming for his, you know, his, his classes at, uh, uh, the college will pop my head here in a second, uh, the New York school, uh, upstate New York. And, uh, he, you know, he was in video, uh, videography or filming something to do in that genre. 
and he brought his cameras for, a, I think it was a senior project or some project he was working on. And so he's got some really, you know, cool footage of, of he and I, not just he and I, but of Brian Hildebrand, uh, Cody Michaels, uh, several other guys that have broken into Dominic school at, at Dominic school. And, you know, it's a really, for me to watch it, it's just such a, you know, a trip back in time down memory lane watching that footage. But yeah, the open invitation is there anytime Mick wants to come on. It'd be my pleasure to have him on. I'd love to have him on. Very cool. Now, here's a question I've seen you answer for on Twitter, but I just want to get into it with you now. Um, but after you give your answer, maybe I'll do a follow up depending on your answer to it. But it's from Brian Indian 83 at Franchise SD, at the Franchise SD, excuse me. Question for you. Do you consider yourself a former NWA World Heavyweight Champion? Uh, whenever I talk about, yeah, I just answered this on Twitter. Whatever I, yes. uh, when, when people ask about how many times I've been a world champion or whatever, I, you know, I, I really have to think about it. It's not something I really keep at the top of my head, but I don't typically count the NWA title run as one of my title runs. Uh, you know, not for any negative reason. It's just, you know, I, had the belt and disavowed it and threw it down. So it's sort of be disingenuous on my part to then say, Hey, you know, I was an NWA world champion at one point. Um, so no, I, I don't, uh, uh, count that typically as one of my world title runs. Now I'm just curious because that's kind of a prestigious thing to be an NWA world champion, despite, you know, obviously when it was, when it happened, maybe the NWA was dead at that point, but, why wouldn't you consider yourself an NWA champion? Wouldn't that be a great thing? It's like, wow, you know, uh, you know, all those guys that were NWA champs beforehand, the races, the flares, the roads, the funks. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of cool to throw your name sure. in that hat and say you're a former world champ? Well, you know, there, 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 it's definitely a pantheon of names that you'd like to be associated with. But again, if, if, uh, if I were to, to now, at least in my way of thinking, if I were to now say, hey, by the way, I was an NWA champion just like those guys, uh, it, it would just really, I think, look disingenuous. And one thing about me is, as you guys know, I, I don't go for that wishy-washy, I'm, I'm varying shades of gray. To me, most things in life are black and white, uh, at least if you're, if you're a straight-up person and a serious person. And, you know, for me, what we did in the ECW is we took a swing for the fences and it very easily could have turned sour. I mean, it could have very easily became, you know, the, the debacle that sunk ECW. Uh, there were still an awful lot of NWA fans, an awful lot of people that, you know, looked at that belt as, as a, even though it had been dead for seven years at that point, uh, there are still people that look at that NWA title with a world of, of, of awe because of all those people that have held that belt. Uh, in no way do I mean it to be demeaning to any of them. In fact, that was the only consternation I had about throwing the belt down in the first place. Is I didn't want guys like Harley Race and Ricky Steamboat and Dusty Rhodes and the, the Funks and the Briscoes and so many others of those guys that I knew personally. I didn't want them to think that I was in any way taking a shot at them because, truth be known, uh, by the time I'd broken into the business, the NWA was the company my company of choice. I had outgrown the WWF, uh, although I grew up on it here in Pittsburgh. By the time they started going to the, the sports entertainment genre, that just lost all my interest. And I was a huge NWA fan. So it had nothing to do with that. I, I was, was trying to be, 
you know, condescending to the NWA. I didn't want any kind of uh, uh, vibe out there with those guys that I highly respected, uh, or should say respect. And uh, had that not worked, you know, because there, there, there was, in my head anyway, you know, and everything hindsight, you know, 2020, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback. But that night, there was, you know, visions in the back of my head that if I throw this belt down, that you, you know, you'd hear crickets in the building and the fans would get up and walk out. Uh, thankfully, that didn't happen and it did launch ECW onto something. But I think that was more reflective. That wasn't so much a repudiation of the NWA. It was a reflection of where the industry stood at that time. Uh, the, the fans had been very loyal to the WWF at that time uh, and the NWA and the AWA and all the other companies we'd mentioned previously. But by that time, it had gotten down to pretty much a two-way race uh, with the NWA and, and WCW. And the fans were yearning for something else, much like they are today. And, you know, nobody wants to go to the ice cream shop every time they go and eat vanilla. Sometimes they want Rocky Road. Sometimes they want pistachio. And there was none of that. It was all vanilla, 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 vanilla. And by the time the NWA had died seven years previous to that, the fans were really screwed because now it was just just literally one flavor. And, you know, I think that was more of what was at work with how the that incident has become so renowned and, and wrestling annals is because of where the industry sat at the time. And just as a final you know, footnote on this thing, I think the industry is right back in the same place, if not in worse straits than it was then. Uh, we've had this, you know, monopolization of the industry by and large, and they continue to go further and further and further down this, this cartoon lane of sports entertainment. And, you know, we've gone over the numbers a million times in the show, but the 50 million plus or minus fans that have walked away from the industry didn't walk away just because they just outgrew it because we're all wrestling fans on this show. And anybody that's ever watched professional wrestling, I think, uh, and I remember the difference I'm making of sports entertainment versus wrestling, but any wrestling fan uh, is, a, is, is by and large a lifelong wrestling fan. And they may jump from product to product or, stylings or whatever they may even drop out for a little bit but they remain a lifelong wrestling fan the fact that last week we saw you know cody rhodes and the, and, and the uh you know his gang up there with the all-in show do such an amazing job selling out that building in 20 something minutes astounding astounding on each and every level you can no matter which way you can try to set part, you know, parse this thing. There's no way you can't look at that and be impressed by, by what, what they had done. But again, I think that's a reflection, much like the NWA belt throw down in the way that that was recognized. I think that the all in show is another reflection of where the industry sits right now and showing the world that professional wrestling is not dead and that the fans are dying for that next thing, whatever that next thing is. Uh, I think the all-in show right now is that next thing is from from what we can see, uh, much like ECW and the night of the NWA uh, title tournament in the ECW arena, uh, that was the launch pad for for ECW going on to bigger, better things. Now we have a young man named Logan Morris. He sent in a couple of questions. Hey, franchise, I met you several times at Bobby Fulton's events, but this is my first time sending in questions. So he's two questions, but the first one is about ECW in 99. 
and we've we've kind of t- talked about that in several different shows and we actually probably should have our own show just dedicated to you leaving there and, and the reasons and all that other stuff but we've talked about that you know at length obviously that hundred forty four thousand um, dollars played a huge role in it but his second question is <laughs> yeah. what is the pro- what's the process like when you get booked by Bobby Fulton on his shows will you continue to come back uh, throughout the year of 2018, like you did last year. Hope you can answer my questions. Tell franchise I'm looking forward to seeing him on May 26th in Circleville. Yeah, I, I know exactly who, who Logan is. Uh, we always have great conversations there in Circleville and at Bobby Fulton shows. Uh, the process that I use uh, is that Bobby Fulton contacts my management and uh, books me through uh, my management. I get a, a weekly rundown from uh from them telling me where i am this weekend and occasionally he'll throw in you know this is where you are this week next week you're here just to get me sort of thinking about so i have a at least a an idea in my head of where i am for the for the next following weeks but it's rarely past that uh, so when somebody will call and say uh, or send me a text or a twitter or something and say hey you know uh, do you know if you're going to be on this show in, in a month and a half? I, I have no idea. I, you know, I, I could find out, but that was the reason why, for anybody that's listening to this, I, I, I'm going to try to reiterate this because I mentioned it before and I, and I wrote at length about it on Twitter and Facebook. Because uh, I still get a, a certain number of people that will contact me and ask me, hey, are you available on this date or that date? Uh, please, in no way, shape, or form, should any anybody that wants to book me think me saying go to the Sandalist Booking uh, Gmail dot com site is, is sort of being condescending. That, that's doing them the favor because a I don't have my book. I don't know what dates I'm open and what days I'm I'm booked. Uh, I get that from my management, and all it's doing is adding a, a chunk of work for me. That which is, you, you know you guys know how busy I am. It's very easy for me to forget about something or overlook something. It's much better for them to take the streamlined method and go straight to the source. Uh, this week, I've had three or four people contact me. And what it boils down to is I basically have to just forward the message over to, to, to Moose and find out, you know, am I open? I'll wait for the response, which, you know, he, he works a full-time job and he's got two young kids. If it's something he's not focused on that particular day because he's got to stop and buy diapers or he's working for Toyota or something else, uh, it's it's really easy for him to uh, forget about something. And if after, you know, say a six-hour period and I've got started 25 other things, it's really easy for me to forget. So, again, I, I, I want to reiterate, I am not being am too important to talk to this promoter con contact my man it has nothing to do with it it has to do with the fact that i don't have my book uh, uh chris does and he knows what dates i'm open and not open and all it does is it creates a big lag in time uh it creates extra work or no extra work needs to be uh had and it really opens the opportunity the possibility that I forget something, uh, something gets lost in translation in this triumvirate of, of contacts. So much better just to go to Shane Douglas Booking, no S, Shane Douglas Booking at gmail.com if you want to book me for a show, and you'll get a very quick answer uh, uh, from Chris Hughes, and he'll let you know if I'm open, and from there, you guys can negotiate out whatever it is. But I, I still get 
people contacted me directly. And some of these guys are people I've known for some time. I understand it. But again, it's not me being, I can't talk to this person. I'm, I'm saying that is so damned important. It has to do with all the things that I've mentioned. And it's much safer for them to go directly to the source to, to book me through that way. Uh, guaranteed if, if, if they go through the Shane Douglas booking at gmail.com site, uh, they're set. Everything is taken care of. No risk for double bookings, which is the reason I went to the system in the first place was after all these years in the business, I was starting to get myself double booked on things because I'd forgot to make a notation of something or whatever. And uh, it's just, it's better for all parties involved. Most importantly, the promoter to make sure that that data is set alone, set aside for them alone and nobody else. Here's a one from Samuel Stevenson in Columbus, Ohio. Shane, what's up with New Jack? Is it a gimmick or is he really a crazy motherfucker? <laughs> you know, some 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 people in this business are straight up gimmicks. Some are amalgamation of gimmick and who they are. Uh, New Jack is exactly what you see. Uh, you know, he is. <laughs> He's pre- he's pretty out there, and, and you know he's a great guy. You know we've we've always gotten along. Uh, Sands for a little tiny point at the very beginning of the ECW, but uh, we've always gotten along great. Uh, you know it's uh, I, I think New Jack has a really special quality that was perfect for ECW. Aside from that, you know the, the crazy, you know uh, the insane character that he portrays. Uh, but the fact that he was so damn good on the microphone and, and came from a really different point, you know, there, it wasn't a, a Ric Flair vein. It wasn't a Bruno San Martino vein. It was a new Jack vein, something completely different than, than fans had heard before. And then he would get into the ring and, and provide what they wanted in the ring in a place like ECW. Uh, but no, new Jack is, he's a crazy motherfucker. Like he like he appears to be in, in, on character. That is no work. That's that's New Jack. Here's one that you answered on Twitter, but I really wanted to get in with you on the show because it's a great question. It's one of those questions that people always ask about anything. They always throw it out there. From Daniel Zamora, excuse me, at Daniel Zamora, franchise, what would be your Mount Rushmore of ECW? <laughs> well, for me, that, that's an easy one because it would be, me, Bam Bam, Chris Candido, and Francine. Like I said, equal rights amendment, baby. Let's put a woman up on there on Mount Rushmore and just imagine what you could do with some of those big boulders down below <laughs> on the uh, <laughs> on Mount Rushmore. Uh, but you know that's you know I remember like at one point, and you guys have probably seen it. Uh, I forget the artist's name, but he had drawn the uh, Kiss Destroyer cover. You know where they're like climbing up this uh, up this mountain and behind them down in the valleys is city in ruins and on fire uh, it's a classic iconic uh, rock album cover and they had taken and put i think it was sandman taz tommy dreamer and sabu maybe there were uh, i forget there were but there were four iconic ecw characters and it was such a cool cover uh you know that question always goes around right it's going to be in the, in the eye of the beholder right i mean for you know, for Taz fans, they're going to want to see Taz on there. Tommy Dreamer fans want to see Tommy Dreamer on there. But uh, for me, my personal take would be the triple threat because it was such a uh, a staple uh, as the heel stable in ECW, which 
every great promotion always had that heel stable. And, you know, I was proud to be part of that with those guys. I personally might have to go with, obviously, Franchise, definitely Bammer, probably Funk and Taz would be mine. But uh, you can't go wrong with a lot of those. And obviously, you can't go wrong with the Triple Threat and Francine. And I like where you where your head's at with those boulders. I like that. That's a good thought. <laughs> well, you know, something, uh, it's either that or you're just going to let those boulders drop off into the valley and <laughs> you just collect dust down below. But you can really put them to good use in this Mount Rushmore. Now, here's kind of an interesting one. I, I, I think it's almost self-explanatory, but I'd like to get your take on it, what you think. It's from at the Nature Boy one No, not, not who you're thinking. It's not a <laughs> player. But what was Terry Funk's style in the ring? Did you have solid in-ring chemistry with Terry Funk? Yes, uh, but, but it, it, it developed over time. Uh, you know, Terry comes from that school, like much like I was taught, uh, you don't talk about the match beforehand. You go to the ring and, and you do it. And the first couple times, Terry, you know, it'd be an understatement to say Terry's unorthodox, right? Uh, so you get into the ring the first couple times you're with him, you know, having grown up watching him and been a huge Terry Funk fan. Uh, then you get in the ring with him and, and it, it takes you some time to, to get a feel for Terry. But once you get that feel and then, you know how he's expecting you to play off of it. And, you know, it's like when two, like when I worked with Joey Styles, for the first couple of weeks, it was, we were stepping on each other. And then you get, after some time, you get a feel for, okay, I know when he's going to end his sentence up and leave an open space for me to jump in. The same thing with Terry Funk. After being in the ring with him a handful of times, uh, you start to develop that chemistry. And as unorthodox as he is, it allows you to know when, you know, when to execute, when to backpedal, when to, uh, when to come forward with them. Uh, I always found Terry to be a challenging match because he was so damn physical in the ring. Uh, you know, and you, well, we all in the business called the windmill, you know, and he gets you, you know, bent over and he starts flailing those arms right and left and hitting you in the back. Uh, those are stiffer than a baseball bat. And, you know, in ECW, that really became the style there. And, and you know, I, I, I never remember anybody complaining about anybody being too snug. Uh, now, if it was somebody that, you know, did something stupid, like threw a chair when you weren't looking or something, that, that would, you know, get some dander up in the dressing room. But uh, as far as laying your punches in or your forearms or, you know, really driving the, you know, a suplex or a slam, nobody ever complained about that. And that's what sort of took on that feel for ECW. Uh, that was so much more physical than places I'd worked before or since. Uh, but Terry's was a very unorthodox style. And again, anybody who's ever watched him knows that to be the case. And uh, but in that that unorthodoxy, there was a uh, a feel that you got working with Terry. Uh, Terry was a so legitimate that you know if he looked at you and gave you that look, you knew what you were in for that night. You know, so I, I always appreciated working with Terry. And, and by, anytime I saw, you know, an upcoming match with Terry Funk, that to me was like fantastic because you knew he was going to bring his A game. The first time I ever wrestled Terry Funk in a singles match, I hadn't seen Terry for some time. And I knew that Paul was planning on a 45-minute Broadway. And I was excited all week long, you know, waiting to get there. And Terry walked in and he could barely stand up. He was like hobbled and really, really dragging. 
And I thought, my God, how how in the world am I going to do this? You know, I was still learning to be a heel and still pretty green in that respect. And we got in the ring, and as soon as that bell sounded, it was like he ripped open his shirt and there was the S on his chest. You know, it was it was incredible to see how uh, how he was able to put all that aside. You know, all those years of bumps and bad bumps and broken bones and torn ligaments and hobbled around, uh, and then got in the ring i literally fought for my life that night i mean i i was throwing everything i had back at him because he was he was bringing it and bringing it pretty snug and i think in some ways he was testing me uh but you know i also knew that not at that moment but as time would go on that that's what terry respected he's going to bring it to you and he expects you to give it back uh so you develop it over time with terry and you know uh i look back at my matches with terry my angles with terry as being some of the highlights of my career. I really, really enjoyed working with Terry Funk. Yeah, and we've told you before on this show, Terry Funk said that about you too, that he puts you up in there with the upper echelon of anybody that he, he worked in his entire career, especially in the if you, wow. if, you, if, you, if, you, if you segregated ECW, he puts the franchise as the, his greatest opponent in ECW too. So it's, uh, that's really cool. It's reciprocated, you know. Like if he's ever told you that, it's, uh, he's, he mentioned it on air with us. So that's... Uh, no, he, he never has. And I'm, I'm telling you, that, that's humbling to hear because, you know, all bullshit aside, Terry's one of those guys that I hold, you know, there's a few, like in my Mount Rushmore, people that I grew up watching, you got Bruno San Martino and Terry Funk and Dominic Vinci. There's, there's certain guys that are, that are up there in my head. And Terry Funk's one of those guys. So to hear him say that is, is incredibly humbling to me. No, that's uh, it was a very cool thing to hear, but how about this one here? This is from Philip L. And it says, how hard is it to shed a comedy gimmick can you think of any wrestlers who were successful in doing so? Oh, boy, I, I'd have to think hard on that. But uh, I, I can use Candido. And, I, and, and I'll, the reason I'll say that is, Chris, uh, I always had, you know, the, this, you know, I, I loved him like a little brother. You know, I, I mean, really, really did. Because Chris was such a great guy and such an incredible in-ring uh, talent. But Chris, I, in my personal opinion, never had faith in himself. And so, you know, comedy spots that Chris is what he would call ha-ha. And, you know, he would go into the ring, and it, it, that was effortless for him. And so, you know, if he was out, out having a match, he could be tearing the house down, all of a sudden he'd throw in some ha-ha and get the fans laughing. And I used to scream at him and address him, Chris, stop with that bullshit. Be legitimate out there because the fans buy you. You can do anything in the ring. And uh, I just think that was his fallback. That was his comfort zone. And, uh, but Chris could move in and out of that seamlessly. You know, he could be doing ha ha one minute and the next minute, you know, building some really serious heat. And I, I, I wish that Chris had had the opportunity, uh, aside from having died so young, but I wish Chris would have had the opportunity to find those, those that, that confidence in himself, because I think if he had, he'd have been, you know, one of the all time greats, uh, because, he really, really was was fantastic in the ring. Like I would, I was always amazed. Like I was, I've said this before on the show. I had to work at it. It never came easy for me. I'd have to sit there and you know put my thinking cap on, and you know I'd learned that from Steamboat and just walk around and run this through your head and digest it and 
you know, like a chess game. What about if I do this? Now nah, that won't work and try something else. And you know, I just had to really spend the day just getting my, my, my wits about me and which way I wanted to take this particular match. Chris Candido was one of those guys that could walk in the door, get out of the car, walk in the back door, put his boots on and go to the ring and have a five-star match. It was effortless for him. Uh, he was one of those guys, much like a Jim Cornette or somebody else that all Chris would talk professional wrestling 24 hours a day. If he'd let him and, you know, about this angle, this date and who won, who went over, who lost, who, you know, who did the job, uh, what was the, the next step of that angle. He knew all that stuff like an encyclopedia. And because he had grown up around the business with his uncle and just really was a huge fan of the industry. And because of that, uh, he, I think he, like, even like, you know, there's times when you're in the ring and you sort of go blank, you get kicked in the head, you get, you know, pretty hard slam, get winded, whatever, and you lose your train of thought. Uh, for Chris, Chris had a, because of that encyclopedia, encyclopedic knowledge of the industry, you know, he could fall back and you would see him, you know, for those of you who have a sharp eye, you could see him suddenly becoming Terry Funk in the ring or doing Ric Flair in the ring or whoever. You know, because he had that on command, he could just sort of pull it out. And, uh, you know, so Chris is one of those guys that I think would, would, would very easily be able to move from uh, comedy to, to the serious. But as far as any character that was a quote unquote uh, uh, ha-ha gimmick, using Chris's terms, uh, I can't think of off the top of my head of somebody moving in and out of that. Uh, other, the only person that immediately comes to mind is Matt Bourne, you know, the original Doink the Clown. And, you know, for anybody that followed Matt's career, he was one of the legit badasses in the business. And suddenly he's out there doing this clown gimmick and, and, and you know, bringing like a special quality to that. But I think Matt, when he came to do the Born Again thing in ECW, uh, with, you know, half the face painted and the other face, half, you know, is Matt. Uh, we did the one promo and got incredible feedback from the fans. The fans were really excited to see Born Again, Matt Bourne coming out of that Doink the Clown gimmick because all those ECW fans were quite familiar with, with Matt's uh, history in the industry up to that point. The problem was right after we did that, that, that promo, uh, we did it down at ringside with Joey Styles, he disappeared. He, he, he left ECW and I don't know if he got cold feet and was afraid of pissing Vince off or what, but he just disappeared and, and never came back. And I, that's one of those characters that not just from like the topic we're talking about, the, the comedy characters and coming out of that, but for ECW, I would have loved to have seen what Matt would have done with that character because I think he'd have been phenomenal at it. I know at one point Vince had sued him about using the makeup and I don't think it was necessarily the name. I think it was more the makeup because I mean, that might have been the intellectual property. But I know there was a lawsuit that was you know, kind of out there. I don't know how far it went, but maybe that could have led to him disappearing. But that, that Born Again character, just to see the promos, and you were there for, for basically all of that Born Again character standing there right next to him. It looked like someone's yeah. descent into madness the way he portrayed it. It was yes. an unbelievable, unbelievable execution of a, uh, of a character. Yeah. And I think in ECW, that could have been, you know, I, I, I was a fan, big mark for, for, uh, for Matt's work and the way that he approached all the characters that he portrayed. 
But I think in that one, like you said, that descent into madness feel that he would have had and been able to bring to that. And then coupled with the physical style that he could have delivered in the ring in ECW, uh, that's one of those things that, you know, you know, you're slapping in like, son of a bitch, I would have loved to have seen that, you know, carried out. And unfortunately, we never got that chance. Yeah, unfortunately, for sure. Now, this one doesn't really have a question in it. It was submitted as a comment uh, underneath a clip that we had released about you uh, and the two of us talking about uh, Sid Vicious. And we were talking about how, you know, it's so weird that Sid commits to bookings and he doesn't show up. And we were kind of throwing the ball back and forth about that. So this guy comments underneath (laughs) and he wants to know, Shane, how could you say this about your brother? If he has a problem, you need to help him. Because I remember a time when he helped you, Shane, do the right thing. And what he did was he attached a video of Lord Humongous helping you beat the Detroit Demolition, which was Randy Colley. And mm. just just thought that was a, uh, a funny thing that popped up. But what are some of your memories of an early Sid Vicious as, uh, as Lord Humongous, as a, as a former tag team partner of yours? Yeah, well, for clarification, he wasn't my brother. He was my cousin, Cousin Hugo. And uh, I remember when Eddie Gilbert came up with the idea, he pulled us into the room and he's laying it out. And, you know, it was there for several weeks leading up to that, you know, I'd be getting my ass kicked by the Samoans or, you know, by Sika or, you know, by Detroit Demolition or by somebody. And, you know, Sid would make hit the ring and make the save. And the fans were really wondering, like, why? Because that, up to that point, Lord Humongous had been played as this, you know, uh, you know, he's an island unto himself and, you know, didn't interact with anybody, didn't speak, that sort of thing. And suddenly he's showing this sort of human being, this human quality of caring about somebody else. And, uh, you know, I can remember we, we had to do the, the, the uh, promo a couple of times because every time we'd get to the line, Cousin Hugo, you know, somebody would start chuckling in the room. Eddie was the first one to do it. He just broke out laughing. And, you know, then, like, like contagious, we, each one of us took our turn. It was, okay, like I'd, I'd break up next and Sid would break up. Uh, but it was, I think, it showed Eddie's, uh, I think, uh, abilities as a, as a booker. You know, it's, you know, just linear booking is, is boring. You know, one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, this guy versus this guy and this guy over, that guy over. It, it sort of gets boring. You want to throw some of those different aspects into not only just angle building, but character building and development. And, you know, for me, as being a young kid going in there that really had no history in the industry other than on independence, uh, they, you know, I think Eddie realized he had to do something to flesh out that Shane Douglas character, make him make him real to the fans, make him a human being that had, you know, connections and, and relationships. And uh, I think for Sid at the same time, he saw putting me with Sid that, you know, you had the you know, really agile big guy and, you know, a, a younger, agile, smaller guy that we'd be able to do some pretty, pretty cool stuff in the ring. I'm pretty sure that would have been Eddie's thinking, not that he ever told me that. But just looking at it myself and thinking, you know, what would have been the thinking and reasoning going into that? Uh, you know, and then if you remember, we did the angle where he got the ink thrown in his eyes. And uh, all that was shot. Most of those portions were shot. Most of our TVs were shot in uh, Birmingham, either at Boutwell or at the uh, fairgrounds when the Boutwell Auditorium was shut down or in Montgomery. 
and occasionally we do television down in Dothan as well. So most of those pieces, as I remember, the ink throwing, the uh, the reveal that you know Sid was my cousin uh, or Hugo was my cousin, uh, those all were shot in Birmingham. No, oh, very cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thought that was kind of funny. They attached the video. Uh, you know, it's a saga. Uh, of, of the basically everything you just said kind of rolled into one, um, you know, one little compilation. But it's funny because Lord Humongous, you know, in that incarnation was played by Sid, but you know, Lord Humongous still to this day is played by uh, different people. It's one of those gimmicks that kind of lives a life of its own and, and shows up in different territories. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see how it's, it's really stood the test of time. Well, Sid, if I, if I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. You know, I'm not because I'm not positive about this, but I'm pretty sure that Sid was not the original. No, Mungus. was no, he and, was not. Yeah, and you know, and, and he came in and uh, he brought like his own thing to it. The, the thing that was funny to me, some like funny stories of that is uh, Sid was, you know, he's a big, massive guy, you know, that that, that was incredibly agile. Uh, and athletic, and he was so eager to want to do moves that would be more tempo towards a guy my size. And you know, one night we were in Columbus, Mississippi, and we were wrestling uh, Sika and his partner. Uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Martin. Uh, oh God, I'm so bad with names anymore. But. Little skinny guy, you know, little thin, good worker, but just, you know, at this point, Eddie was doing a thing with him that he had inherited this money and he had bought Sika's contract. And so Sid comes up, you know, back then the dress rooms were kayfabe. So, you know, you couldn't say, hey, you know, Sika, can we do this spot or that spot? But he sends us, he tells me that the spot he wants to do with Sika, uh, where he wants Sika to walk away, sell away from him, and then. Uh, as he does, he wanted Sika to come up behind him and get down on his hands and knees like a schoolboy and then have Alan Martin, Alan Martin was his name, come up off the second turnbuckle and hit him with a punch and he would take this bump tripping over Sika. And I said to him, uh, why don't you forget about that spot? Because I don't, A, I don't see Sika as the kind of guy that would go and get on his hands and knees behind like a schoolboy. That'd be a move I would do. And so he sends the spot over uh, or tries to with the ref. I stop the ref. I said, just, you know, kayfabe, don't send it. And we get into the ring and he takes Sika back into the corner. He's choking him. And I see the mask going up and down a million miles a minute. You know, you can tell he's talking. And I thought, oh, Christ, no, he's calling the spot. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks away and he goes over towards Alan, who by this time has climbed up the second turnbuckle. And Sika has walked over to a neutral corner and he's leaning in the corner, crossed his feet and puts his elbow on the rope like he's just sitting watching like a fan. And now Sid thinks he's down behind him on his hands and knees. And Alan comes up and comes up the second rope with this really flimsy, weak looking punch. And Sid takes a step back and he's like a big redwood tree, timbers and falls. <laughs> and the whole building went completely silent because they thought like Sid had a heart attack or something. <laughs> it's like, why did he fall down? <laughs> and I looked over at Seek and Seek is over like covering his mouth, you know, cracking up, 
you know, smiling and laughing. And we got to the back and I said, did you learn anything? You know, because that's, uh, but you know, Sid, he, he was so, and, and again, he was an athlete. He is an athletic son of a bitch. He can, you know, back then he could do kip ups and, you know, all the flying stuff. And I, I said to him, boy, I wish we could reverse rules because I'd love to be the big guy that has to take no bumps and bumps everybody during the match. <laughs> but he, uh, I think he was eager to show, you know, what athletic prowess that he had, and he did have, but it just didn't fit that character. Yeah, right, and he'd end up uh, obviously going on to have a pretty lengthy career, and not soon after uh, teaming with you, he'd be joining the NWA, WCW, and be a member of the Four Horsemen, and the rest, right. they say, is history. But kind of moving forward right. here with some other questions, got to uh, got to cram some more in here. This is from Dexter Cumberbatch, and a Chad note here on the paper says that's the greatest name ever. Uh, why aren't there any larger-than-life characters in wrestling anymore? Well, I, I think, from my own personal opinion, you know, in my humble opinion, uh, I think that the industry has, uh, the industry being sports entertainment, has moved away from that. You know, it's now we're going to come in and we're going to put uh, a, a Dean Douglas character on you, know, seven PhDs, and so ridiculously absurd that nobody believes it. Uh, but, you know, if I were, if Vince were here, he would say, well, we're creating a television show. And that's all good and fine. I just don't understand why the television show has to be absurd and ridiculous and the characters unbelievable, you know, as opposed to. Uh, something more believable. I grew up watching wrestling when all the characters were believable, uh, the heels and the baby faces. And, you know, somehow that, that transformed into uh, something that became sports entertainment. Now that said, in Vince's defense, you know, he created uh, characters like the undertaker, for instance, uh, the ultimate warrior, uh, you know, he was able to put characters on guys that, you know, may not be able to go out and have a five-star match. Not not saying that in Mark's case, but, you know, in a way to protect them, sort of. Uh, but I, I just, for me, I'm a purist on the sport, and I, I believe that, you know, a, a realistic character like Flair was a flamboyant, or I should say is, a flamboyant, uh, larger-than-life, over-the-top character. But he's also completely believable and legitimate. You know, it's not like they're mutually exclusive. Like, you can either be a character or you can be a wrestler. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive entities. And, you know, Vince has made a lot of money with the way that he's done things. Uh, I personally can't explain why Vince doesn't uh, uh, get back to some of that. It's the same thing with why doesn't there, why aren't there uh, managers as, proficient, as prolific as there used to be? You know, I grew up in the era of, you know, the Grand Wizard and Freddie Blassie and Lou Albano and Arnold Skoland and, you know, these, all these over-the-top, uh, you know, later slick and, 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 and guys like that. You know, there were, you know, and then obviously in, in ECW, we had Francine and Beulah and, you know, other characters and later Tori Wilson. You know, so I think there's a really big place for that if done properly and, and allowed to blossom and you know gestate and you know get you know get the time behind it that allows those those uh whether it's a manager a valet uh a group like a triple threat or a tag team allow that to get established with the audience and get over i can't explain 
why they don't do that anymore, other than I just think that Vince believes that he's running a wrestling television or, or a sports entertainment television show and that it has nothing to do with two plus two equals four. It's just I'm going to write it and create it and you as viewers going to love it or screw you. Uh, I'm, I'm much more oriented towards giving the fans what they want, albeit swerving them when you need to and taking them on a ride. But, you know, if you're if you're trying to sell automobiles, you don't come in and say, you know, I know you want, you know, fire engine red or, you know, uh, uh, sleek black or whatever. But the only cars I'm making are white. So you can have white or white or you can have white. That's your three choices. Uh, you give the you give the buyer what they want. And in my estimation, I think that which is sort of ironic to say this week as we've seen Vince's stock shooting through the roof. Uh We've seen at the same time, on the other hand, the industry losing 95, 6, 7% of its audience from 20, 25 years ago. Uh, house show attendance down across the board. And you hear fans now in open rebellion against sports entertainment. Uh, the all in show uh, selling out that quickly. I think all of those are parts of uh, uh, symptoms of the larger problem of what is wrong with the industry today that the fans aren't being given those believable characters, those uh, uh, managers and valets. And uh, I think the only, re the only thing I could think of is it's either Vince wants it that way, which is most likely the case or the writers that they have, the Hollywood writers that they have don't know how to write and create those characters. So it's one or the other or consortium of the two. More Tory, please, is all I'll, uh, all I'll say. More Tory and <laughs> less everything else. But then the second part of his question kind of piggyback what you just said. It said, can the WWE product succeed if their top priority is the shareholders and not the fans? But I just want to comment. I, in a way, think they do listen to the fans in certain aspects. And obviously, I think Triple H running NXT is an indication of that because that's a very fan-friendly, fan-driven, uh, especially the smart fan mm -hmm. product. But I, I don't think that that's translating well to when they get to the main roster and Vince gets their hands on them and he doesn't know what to do with them. So, yeah, it's, it's can they succeed if their top priority is the shareholders and not the fans? Well, you know, therein lies the conundrum of when you become a publicly traded company. You know, you, you, you're, you're betrothed to a different master as opposed to the audience and the fan base, you're now betrothed to the people that if you don't satisfy them, are going to say, well, I'm going to pull my money out and go somewhere else and invest there. Uh, you know, I think, and this is the part, you know, you guys all know my, any fan listening knows my personal feelings about Vince, but I am astounded at his business acumen in this sense. As the industry has lost well over 90% of its audience, over the last 20, 25 years. As the house show attendance continues to, to either stay flat or dwindle, as the network buy rate has grown stale, uh, you don't see that protracted growth uh, in, in those numbers. And, and even if those numbers are accurate in the first place, in other words, if you bought the network two years ago, are they still counting you? Uh, and yet in light of that, in light of all those negative trending numbers, we're seeing Fox getting ready to offer him or has offered him if the accounts that, that I'm reading are accurate over a billion dollars for five years of SmackDown, their B show. Uh, amazing. 
the only the only thing I can think of is that it's because the fans are looking. I mean, the, the networks are looking for original content, and Vince has a proven track record of providing original content. So it's uh, it's astounding. When you look at the stock, you know, I'm I'm no investment guru, but when you look at the stock, I'm at a loss to explain how the stock has gone up 88 percent in the last several weeks with all those things I just mentioned being the case. So, uh, you know, he's, he's like Dusty Rhodes would say, he's making uh, chicken salad out of chicken shit and, and doing it better than anybody's ever done it because he's still making money with all those negative numbers. It is crazy to see where we've gone, where Fox is given a billion dollar deal and there's less people watching. It's just, it, it's, it's a strange uh, time in the business. But he got another uh, good question for you. His name is, I guess this is some sort of gimmicky name, but we'll go with it. Another lost fan. He says, Shane, if you go back in time to one promotion and pick an ideal partner, dead or alive, to have a long tag team run with, who would it be and who would you like to team against? Well, for me as a tag team partner, I, I, I like right at the top of my head, I immediately think uh, Steam, but I just mentioned a second ago about you know, my affinity for the NWA at that time, you know, coming into the business, how, what a mark I was for the NWA product. And then later getting to wrestle with Ricky Steamboat as my partner. Hey, I learned so much from him. He was, he, he, he is truly a maestro. You know, he, he goes out there and commands the audience like, like any maestro would command an orchestra. It's, it's really stunning to watch. And that was just a really good time in my career. A, Ricky and I got along fantastically, still do. Uh, it was such an opportunity for me to learn. And if you watch closely in those tapes, you'll see me becoming a fan on the apron. Instead of working the apron door I'm supposed to do, I'm watching the match like a fan because he was so damn good. Uh, and he'd have to remind me, he'd take a bump and, you know, get in the match partner, you know, get me back into it. Uh, so if I had any, if it was one person from my past, I'd say I'd like to team within a long-term thing, it would be Ricky Steamboat. Uh, and part of that's, you know, uh, self-serving too, because, you know, Ricky was so damn good. You'd go out and shit the bet on your part of the match and the match still got a decent rating because of Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> so there's a, you know, a little bit of, uh, of, uh, uh, self-serving going on there as far as working against, oh man, I've, I've worked with so many incredible people over the years, but just from a tag team standpoint, I would immediately think. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, or Arn and Ole, uh, I, you know, either of them I thought were astounding tag teams. In the vein of, of what I love as the sport of wrestling, th- those guys really stood out to me. And uh, you know, going forward in ECW, I would think that you know a, a tag team of. Uh, you know, as, as awkward as it would sound, you know, from the from the characters and, and, and the angles point of view. But I would think Tommy Dreamer and Raven as a tag team, A, because I had incredible chemistry with both of them. I, I could always count any time I would see my name versus one of them that there'd be great matches ensuing. So if it would be me and Ricky Steamboat uh, wrestling against, say, those two uh, in ECW, I think would be a phenomenal uh, match because uh, Raven, I've always been a really big fan of, of Stotts that he was able to create a, a very, you know, coming out of a very corny gimmick, if you will, from the WWE or WWF 
and you know having that you know Scotty the Body uh, thing that he came with from Portland, and then he comes into ECW and creates this Raven character. Now, I remember we were shooting the very earliest promos with Raven. Uh, we were in a school someplace in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. It was a high school. We were down in one of the classrooms, like a chemistry room or something. And he was sitting down in the corner of the room and just slouching and giving this slow, deliberate delivery and, you know, just meandering on it. First thing, like, what's he talking about? And then you go back and you watch that uh, as a promo, as a piece of the building of that character. And you see this, you can see this piece by piece character being built that became a, a very uh, uh, legitimate part of ECW. And that's hard to do. Like, I guess, you know, feeding into the last question, a few questions about coming out of a comedy gimmick. Uh, Raven, having coming out of, having come out of the Scotty the Body uh, uh, character that, that he had been given prior to that, and then creating this Raven character that was so fitting for ECW and so easy to forget about his previous incarnations of the Scotty the Body character. Uh, you know, I, I think he did about as good a job as he could in, in leaving one character behind and creating a new compelling character. Here's a good one from our good old buddy, Bruce Couch. Bruce BC Couch. I just wanted to thank Shane for all the years of professional wrestling and entertaining me through the years. I actually loved his Dean Douglas character in the WWF, which is quite shocking to hear, I'm sure, to you, Shane. But his question is, <laughs> What was it like the first time around in the WWF when you were there donning the great orange tights? I loved it. Uh, there was no pressure. Uh, I was working with you know, guys like Haku every night, uh, Black Bart. Um, you know, it was it was exciting because it was up to that point, having never been in the, in the WWF prior to that, other than to do some jobs early on in my career. It was completely different than what I had seen in the NWA and the UWF. Uh, there was a, a business side to it that up to that point I had never seen. You know, in, in all of the previous companies, it was you'd show up at the building, you'd open your bag, you'd put your stuff on, you'd go to the ring, or you'd go out in front of the camera and cut your promo. Now suddenly you, you get here and they have in the backstage area, you know, promo booths, uh, four, five, six promo booths that are air-conditioned and self-contained, uh, sound-condensed, so you could, you know, I could be screaming and, and, and booth number one and booth number two, two feet away, couldn't hear anything. Uh, you, you know, you suddenly saw the business side of the wrestling industry and that we had never, I had never seen before, uh, whether on the Indies and coming up in the business or the NWA, uh, the UWF, I had never seen that before. Uh, those companies were run more like the old territories were run. And now you're here in, in the WWF and you're seeing, by and large, how he was able to really take the industry over because he was light years ahead of everybody else in that respect. Uh, but for me, that first time, it was there was almost no pressure other than to go out and perform well every night. Uh, there was, uh, less or, or none of the backstabbing that I would see in later, in my later, uh, venture in the WWE or WWF. Uh, 
it, it was a fun place to work. I was making good money, uh, traveling. We were having a great time. All the good parts of the business that I recall from the UWF, the Independence, the NWA, Continental, uh, I was seeing in the WWF plus the money plus the professional business side of the industry. You know, so I did learn an awful lot there. And it was in that first time up there that Vince, after about six or seven or eight months, had finally decided that he wanted to build a character for me. And uh, we had he had come up with the idea of, you know, I used to play bass and sing and things. And he had come up with the idea of creating a, like a John Bon Jovi type rock star gimmick. And he had Jimmy Hart write several songs. Uh, we had at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, uh, he had tested my voice with each song. He had, you know, a rock version, a pop version, a, a harder rock version of each song. And we went through those and decided on which, you know, which my vocal range was best suited for. But right before, and that's where that, if you remember the, the uh, outfit that I have, but that was denim and white leather with conchos, uh, that's what that, that outfit was built for. And right before we got ready to go into the studio to record music, my dad became sick with uh, advanced emphysema and COPD and then later lung cancer. So uh, I left, uh, but it was very cordial in leaving. Vince and I sat and talked, uh, I believe it was either, I'm, I'm almost 99.9% positive it was Niagara, uh, Niagara Falls. And we sat and talked. He told me how much he enjoyed my work and that the door was always open. And he told me about how family always comes first and that the door would always be open to come back anytime I wanted. And, uh, you know, I left on very cordial terms with Vince. You know, my first uh, trip up there, I wish I had left it at that because I had fond memories of that time. And my 1996 venture up there was the complete antithesis of that. So uh, the first time, though, I have nothing but fond memories of. Speaking of that time period, it's got a good question here. Matt via email. Thoughts on the click, obviously, you know, pertaining to, to that time period if we hated that time in WF, but do you see them today at shows, conventions, et cetera? And do you guys get along at all? I do. Yeah, I, I see them not quite often, but I, I see Kevin more than most, uh, Xbox part of the next, uh, and then uh, Scott the least of those uh, of, of that group um but we've all spoken since then and uh you know it's uh, you know pretty much left it as water under the bridge uh look i, I and i mentioned this today on twitter you know i don't look at my running in uh, in 96 as being a totally negative thing there were there was very little about it i enjoyed but i learned an awful lot about it and the fact that whenever i left there I knew I was done for good with WWF. Uh, I didn't want to ever work there again and never have. Uh, so in a way, there was a positivity that came from that because it allowed me then to set my sights back on what the franchise character was, how I wanted to portray that. And I look back at that now in hindsight, and I'm proud of the fact, I'm honored by the fact that I was able to forge a career in this business pretty much even after it was monopolized and was able to build a career that the fans remember, that the fans respect, and that I didn't do it having to kiss literally or figuratively another person's ass. 
Uh, you know, so for me, that's a really big point of, of pride and thankful that the fans uh, had followed me all this time. You know, when if I had spent, my, let's say whenever I went there in 90 or 96 and I'd spent the rest of my career there and had an incredible run and was on WrestleMania and all the rest of it, well, it'd be easy for fans to say, boy, aren't you lucky that, that Vincent Mann did that for you? Uh, instead, you know, it was a little bit rougher road to go, but I was able to forge a career without Vince. So Vince can't take credit for any portion of my career. And to have been able to do that and build a career that I have and having never been on a WrestleMania is something I'm extremely proud of. Now, is there any residual heat with anybody from the clique? Is there anybody you don't really, not that you don't see them or whatever, but is there anybody you, you know, prefer not to see or any? Buddy, you would rather not talk to that was in the clique? No, nah, I, you know, the, the only person I haven't spoken to and really have no compunction uh, about is, is Shawn Michaels, uh, in large part because in 1990, when I was up there, uh, Shawn, Marty, me, and Dustin Rhodes, uh, the guys in the dressing room called us the four amigos because we saw one of us, saw four of us. We really were inseparable. We traveled together, we trained together. Uh, we wrestled pretty much together. Uh, we looked out for each other on the road. You know, if, if Marty and Sean had a match and me and Dustin were done, we'd go out and grab food for us to, for the trip to the next town and vice versa. Uh, when we would come to Pittsburgh, I was, my brother was a set designer in Hollywood and has a big home up over the hill from where I live. I would give them the keys to the house and say, make yourselves at home. You know, and help yourself whatever's in the fridge. You know, it's, you know the house is yours. Uh, to me, when somebody does that for you, and you have that kind of relationship, to then later sort of take advantage of that, and you know, uh, do the things that Sean had done to me for whatever reason. Uh, I always thought with Sean that his was more based out of his own insecurities because I've, I've, it's no surprise. And I've always said this and I will always say it. Uh, Sean was one of the, the greatest in ring performers our industry has ever seen. But the fact that he had to rely on the backstabbing and the politicking, uh, he had said to me one time, you know, you can make friends, you can make money. I choose to make money. Well, I, I don't see it as mutually exclusive. Uh, I've been able to make friends and I've been able to make money. Uh, but you know, that, I think it always just really spoke more of what his insecurities were as opposed to, you know, what he should have been able to accomplish in his mind. He has this, this self-imposed challenge in his own head. Who's greater, him or Ric Flair? And, and I mean, to him, it's a shoot. You know, like he takes that very, very seriously. And, uh, you know, the saying about Ric Flair was always that he could have, he could make a broomstick uh, look great, have a five-star match with a broomstick. Uh, if Sean really believed he was better than Flair, and then you've seen his comments since, and, you know, I, I sort of chuckle at it when I see it, when he says, well, Shane wasn't very good. I don't claim to be on, on Sean's level, but my record speaks for itself. That wasn't an aberration. It wasn't dumb as smoke and mirrors, and it wasn't magic. Uh, if, if Sandman could have a good match with Shane Douglas, if Taz, if Sabu, if all the people in ECW could have these good matches, then how could the guy who claims that he's better than Ric Flair not? Uh, 
I think it's more of a mental block in his mind and him trying to prove to himself something that, that is or isn't. And I just find it completely convenient. Uh, I'm agnostic, as you all know. I find it completely convenient that after a career of that, you suddenly find God at the end, and it's sort of like the get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't, can't hold anything against me now because I found God. And I especially love the uh, T-shirt with HBK and Jesus' place on the cross. You know, I, I'm agnostic. I was raised a Christian, but I, I think there's what's that word again? Sacrilege? I think that sort of applies. Now, here's a good one, I feel like, with your UWF day. So from Colin Norman. Mr. Douglas, big fan of the podcast and everything you've done in your career. My question revolves around your time in UWF. What were your first impressions of staying after arriving in the UWF? And do you think the UWF stayed solely a watch promotion that would have surpassed what WCW did and actually would have became a viable competitor to the WWF in the 1990s? I think it certainly had the leg to do that. Uh, I'll start at the beginning, Mike. My initial thoughts of Steve were and have always been, uh, he's a great guy. Uh, when I first met him, in fact, he was the first person I met. Uh, when I got to the, I, you know, I took four days to drive down from Pittsburgh. I was in no rush. I didn't have to be there till like Monday was my first day on TV, I think. And so I left like on Wednesday or Thursday and just sort of slowly meandered down the country to get there. And I got there late Friday and uh, got to the building, the, the office building, uh, which was right between Dallas and Fort Worth. Got there, and I, you know, it was underground parking, and I went in and parked and got out of the car. I'm walking towards the elevator. I see Sting and his wife, Sue. And we got on the elevator. I introduced myself. We went up, and, you know, he went and took care of his business. And I went and met with Eddie and, uh, you know, signed my paperwork and stuff. And... As I was leaving, Eddie said to Steve uh, Sting, he said, hey, uh, you know, Shane's is getting to town. Do you have any idea where he might be able to stay? And Steve said, yeah, you know, I, just, I happen to have a, an open room at my house. Uh, the fallen angel had been living with him and had just moved out. And he said, if you want to move in, you're more than welcome. And I followed them back to their house and, you know, moved in with them. And uh, they were always very cordial, very pleasant to be around. Uh Sting at that point taught me an awful lot about working out. I didn't, you know, I used to think if you went to the gym and just a little of this, a little of that. Uh, Steve, having been a, a former bodybuilder, you know, started, he's the one that really first taught me how to work out in the gym, you know, how to start to build muscle and how to focus on body parts, et cetera. Uh, Steve and I have always gotten along very well. Uh, I was always happy to see you know, what he had achieved in the business because he had, you know, he had such a, a different character that was at that time was different enough, modern enough at that point. It wasn't a throwback to the old days of wrestling. It was something new and exciting. And, uh, you know, with his uh, athleticism, you know, it was easy to take that character and that, that character built, then angle him with flair. And I think he learned an awful lot from flair and working with that angle. And really got himself ensconced as being one of the top guys. Uh, Steve's always been, uh, I've always considered Steve a friend. And it, it really does, if you draw the line, goes back to that day of meeting him on the elevator at the uh, UWF offices in Dallas. Um, as for UWF's product, 
I've always said that I thought the UWF was ECW before ECW. Uh, not meaning that in a comparison, a direct comparison sort of way, but in the way that Bill always built his companies around heels. The heels always had heat. Uh, if you go back and look at tapes of that time of the UWF and compare them with either the NWA at that time or the WWF at that time, he, his shows were as exciting, if not more so, <clears throat> but in a more legitimate real world type of way. Uh, you know, Bam Bam Gordy and, and the, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the heels they had there, and the, uh, you know, Bad Street USA. And all, I mean, there was just so many things going on. And then Terry Taylor, of course, turning heel his first time. Eddie Gilbert, who I always thought was a completely underrated talent, both as a, an in-ring performer and as a mind on the business of Booker, an assistant Booker, whatever you want to say. <clears throat> I thought that Bill Watts had a really special company. Unfortunately, the way the winds were blowing at that time, uh, Vince had, had taken that first stab at becoming a national company and it really grabbed as much of the, of the country as he could and, and, and was successful at that. At that point, it was very difficult for anybody else to play catch up. USA wasn't going to talk to another promoter and knock Vince off. Uh, so, you know, Vince won by the fact that he was the first to have the vision to do it. Uh, Bill Watts was still, I think, in my estimation, was still thinking in terms of the old territories. So you run up there, I'll run down here. And by the time he realized that Vince was a legitimate threat, because up to that point, uh, when Vince first went nationwide, the general consensus in the industry was that he's going to fail. And that when he did, they'd be all there to pick up the pieces and grab you know, the portions of it. Uh, unfortunately for them, that didn't happen. And by the time they realized that that wasn't going to happen, Vince had really entrenched himself as the national company. Uh, later, the NWA made a pretty good stab at it. Uh, later, WCW uh, with the corporate backing. Uh, but there was, you know, the, the politics of that would be an entire show by, of itself, in and of itself. Uh, Vince had pretty much gobbled up the, the nation and became the sole entity in, in, in professional wrestling. One question from John and Chad of the Triple Threat Podcast. This is for Shane. Shane, how come you are afraid to have Francine come on the show? What kind of dirt does she have on you that you don't want her on? That's what I want to know. I didn't say she has dirt. I mean, I just said, you know, for somebody, Franny and I had spent an awful lot of time on the road together, uh, years on the road together probably longer than I had spent on the road with anybody in a singular role. So it's not that I'm afraid to have her on. I just don't see the need for it. Like, you know, somebody's going to come on. If we would have her on, uh, somebody's going to send in a question and you know, ask for what dirt she has on the franchise or uh, whatever. Um, you know, for me, there's some things that are left best untouched, leave it as the memory that it was, and the fans have a lot of respect for what she and I uh, achieved together. Um, I just don't see the need to have her on. Other, you know, But listen, if the fans really want Francine on, I... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I would have no... <coughs> I'd have no qualms with that. <laughs> if that's what the fans really, really wanted, but, you know, I just... I, 
I just don't see the me. I think right now the fans can get the best of both worlds with us on Twitter. Somebody posts something, she responds, I respond. We have a back and forth. Why? Why do we need her on the show? What I mean, what's what's the difference of Twitter or having her on the podcast? I think it shows that the show's a little bit of a uh, media destination there, franchise, especially with Mickey from Long Island trying to uh, <laughs> find find a way to get on the show as well. <laughs> well, like I said, the fans really, really want that, but I, you know, I, I would consider it. But I just think some things are best left untouched, and uh, no reason to muddy the waters. Let's let's just let that franchise Francine settle in and. And just be a positive memory for all the fans. No reason to muddy the water. We will see if we can reach into the bag of tricks and pull a rabbit out of a hat, folks. We will see what we can do. But that's going to call it quits here on an Ask Franchise Anything episode of the Triple Threat podcast. We had some great questions. There's a ton we didn't get to still. And we'll put those back in the vault and we'll revisit them in the next uh, couple of weeks. And we'll add them back on to the shows as we go along, as we go back to talking about just certain things going on in the world of, uh, of the sports entertainment slash professional wrestling genre and talk about so many cool happenings in and around the franchise, Shane Douglas and the two-man power trip. And we will all be together on June 9th in Monroe, New Jersey at Legends of the Ring. Another great event coming Woo-hoo. to the new, yeah, another great event coming to the New Jersey area you're going to be able to meet the franchise. You're going to be able to meet Jerry the King Lawler. You're going to be able to meet Dominic DiNucci at this event. Yes. And also Mick Foley will be in the building as well. And I think John would like to point out that it's been uh, quite a while since you, Dominic, and uh, and Mickey from Long Island have all been in the uh, the same uh, event or the same room together. Yeah, in fact, I can't remember when I saw that earlier on. I, I think you guys had posted something about uh, about that convention, and I started thinking about it. I think it's been it's been a long time since the three of us have been standing together in a venue. Uh, you know, again, you know, everybody knows that Dominic had trained both Mick and I, along with Brian Hildebrand and Cody Michaels and several others. Uh, it's going to be really cool to, to to be there. And in fact, Mickey had already sent us an invitation. He's going to be doing a show in Pittsburgh. I want to say it's like June twenty sixth. Uh, sometime uh, during the summer uh, down near Pittsburgh. And so me and Mick and Cody and uh, a couple other guys, uh, Dominic's daughter and son-in-law, we're all going to go catch Mick's show down there. Uh, but, you know, this is uh, this will be one of the first opportunities in decades that I think the three of us have been together uh, for an event such as this. So it should, it should be a pretty damn cool thing. It's uh, It's actually June 28th. And uh, I will also say that uh, the uh, the Micker has uh, thrown the invite out to uh, two of your uh, your fine co-hosts there as well to uh, to join you. But obviously, logistics uh, might get in the way of, of that one. As much as we would love to uh, to be there alongside the you all for the Pittsburgh show. Yes, yes, he did. He was quite. Uh, oh, you got you got you guys got to come and hang out at the franchise abode. Uh, the franchise cave, the franchise lair. <laughs> well, trust me, I mentioned it about a hundred times this weekend to, to John about how I'd love to try to make this happen. So still got a few weeks to figure that out. But in the meantime, please head on over to prowrestlingtees.com slash the franchise SD and get your hands 
on some of the brand new Shane Douglas t-shirts. Uh, I was able to get my hands on them courtesy of uh, JP this weekend. They look great. They feel great. And uh, they will be a wonderful addition to your uh, your garment collection. If, you, uh, if you're a wrestling t-shirt aficionado, you got to have the franchise involved, especially with the iconic franchise logo and some of the cool t-shirts that they have designed for pro wrestling tees, as well as pick up the brand new franchise Shane Douglas action figure from Figures, Inc., at WrestlingSuperstore.com. Uh, they actually just announced tonight that they will be making the first ever Francine action figure slash nice. doll. Yeah, so you'll be able to add Francine to your Shane Douglas figure for the first time ever, wow. Shane. Yeah, how about that? First time in history. See, now, now see that? Like, if you'd have her on the show, like, you'd probably embarrass her if you'd ask her about that because she's a very... You know, a very per, uh, private person. And you'd like mentally got an action figure. She would probably die of embarrassment talking about that. So I just wouldn't want to put her in an awkward position like that. <laughs> I, I'm just looking out for her. <laughs> yeah, that news broke earlier this evening as we're recording this here on uh, on a Tuesday night. So, uh, yeah, very cool figures, Inc. WrestlingSuperstore.com. They've got a great series of legends, a lot of hardcore legends. They also have like a Rising Stars set, and it's pretty uh, it's pretty cool what they're doing. They're in the vein of the old school uh, Mego dolls from the 1970s, Shane. If you remember the Mego oh, wow. action figures, that's what they're kind of styled after. I remember the Mego Kiss figures. Like Gene Simmons had the horrible, horrible hair, like real hair pulled up in a bun and. Uh, Mego, wow, boy! How old are you? <laughs> you must be like an old, an old soul. I I love this shit, Shane. I can't I can't stress that enough. I I absolutely love it. But please check out the Shane Douglas action figure. Check out the t-shirts and come back here next week for another great episode. And send in your questions to the triple threat pod at gmail.com. Again, the triple threat pod at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at the franchise sd and at two man power trip as well as the show's twitter which is at the number three threat pod as shane before we wrap up please tell the fans where you're going to be out there in the wild doing your thing this coming weekend this coming saturday i'll be down at circleville to see my friend logan who asked a question earlier and uh uh, facing off against uh, an old ECW nemesis, Pitbull number one, whose neck I broke some 20 years ago. Uh, we'll be getting it back on again this weekend in Circleville, seeing great fans like Logan. Uh, looking forward to it. I understand it's Bobby Fulton's retirement show. Too bad I won't get my hands on him anymore, but looking <laughs> forward to a big, big event in Circleville this coming weekend. And if you look at the poster for that event, you'll notice there's a uh, Pittsburgh Pirate legend, Al Oliver, is uh, on the poster for this show. So hopefully you're not. Uh, That's right. Hopefully you're not battling Al Oliver in a uh, triple threat match there with Gary Wolf, uh, or a special guest enforcer. <laughs> Hell no, man! Al, big fan of the 1979 Buckos World Series. Al Oliver, part of it. I'm- I'm going to be playing Mark this weekend and getting an autograph for myself. <laughs> That's great. If I had time, I would have thrown you a, uh, I would have thrown you a baseball. But uh, maybe the next time, Al Oliver is booked on a wrestling show. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, let's get it wrapped up here for the week. Another fun episode. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. We're going to sign off here, and only the way the franchise can. 
Shane, the floor is yours. Let's get it on to next week's episode number 49. Just four episodes away as of tonight from the big one-year anniversary. Next week, number 49, as we count down. Question is, will you fans really tune in to find out if Francine is going to be one of our guests or maybe somebody else from the ECW locker room or maybe even somebody else from one of the other companies? You have no idea. But each week right here on the Triple Threat Podcast, you don't know what you're going to find until you listen in. We ask your great questions. We hear about the great conventions, TMPT2, and all the rest of the goings on in the wrestling industry. Tune in next week or get your ass franchised. 